So this past week, I had a computer problem at home, and I called the technical support people uh, who represent the manufacturer of the computer, and I told this person on the other end what my problem was, and I had um, a conversation with him, and he told me to do certain things, and it didn't really resolve the issues, so I called the second time, and he said, well, let's try this, that, and the other thing, and I did that, and, and then I was going to, it didn't work, I was going to call him the third time, but before I called him, it occurred to me, wow, I've really gotten distracted from whom I am. I'm an ambassador for Christ. If you're a Christian, so are you. That's the main reason why we're here, to represent the Lord Jesus. And so I uh, suddenly remembered oh my goodness, that's who I am. So I determined on the third conversation, I was going to make the Lord, not my computer, an issue in the conversation. But before I uh, called this person back for the third time, I was laboring over how do I do it? How do I get things started? So uh, uh I just remembered, I happened to remember 40 words that I memorized some time ago. And when I called them back, we're now on a first name basis. I said, hello, how are you? And uh, Stuart here again. And I said, you know, uh, I named his name. I said, you know, it would be really great if you could resolve my computer problem. But let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place for my sin. And uh, a conversation, uh, not about computers, but about the cross, ensued. And he opened up about his spiritual journey and where he was and so on. And it was just absolutely Wonderful, and I knew I had done the right thing in being an ambassador for Christ. Now, he did not pray to accept the Lord as Savior at that time. But what if he did? What if I said, would you allow me to lead us in a prayer to the Lord, and then you could uh, join in and open your heart up to the Lord, and you can invite him into your life to take control and to be your Savior. Would you like to do that? Let's say he said, certainly. And I, I led him in what we call the sinner's prayer, something like that, and he prayed to accept Christ. On that basis, could I be certain that he was truly born anew? I ask you, what do you think? Uh, uh, those of you are shaking your head like this, I agree with you. I mean, that sounds great, and yet reality tells us many who profess to know Christ seem to be living lives as inconsistent with that profession as the man depicted in the video you saw. So then I'm wondering, how could I know if I really can't take someone's word for it alone, what are the parameters by which I can determine whether someone truly is a Christian? 
Well, uh, an answer to that question is given to us in the passage before us tonight. And, and we'll get there, but first, would you look with me at John chapter 8, verse 25, and we're going to move into uh, the verse which actually answers the question you have been discussing. Look, John 8, 25. So they, and to refresh your memory, that's a reference to the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem at this time. They were saying to him and the him is this unusual rabbi Jesus, this uh, renegade rabbi Jesus who did not come from any of their seminaries or schools, did not come up through their ranks, and yet was developing quite a following. They said to him, who are you? Now, why'd they say that? Well, because the previous verse, verse 24, is one in which we see some rather bold words by the Lord. He said, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's what he said to these Jewish religious leaders. And they now ask him the question, who are you? This is the sense of what they're asking. Who in the world do you think you are? That's essentially what's going on. And so uh, the Lord answers. We're told, Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? In other words, I am whom I repeatedly declared and demonstrated that I am. That's what he said. So they insultingly ask him to defend himself. He turns it back on them and says in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. If he chose, they are on the spot. In the temple precincts during one of the feasts of Israel, at that moment in Jerusalem, if he chose to pinpoint all of their sins and transgressions, he would have had ample ground to condemn them, to judge them right on the spot. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm withholding that kind of judgment right now because I've come instead to operate on the Father's timetable and schedule for me. Therefore, I speak to you of that which I have heard from him. And so he says, he who sent me, see the Lord Jesus and flesh saw himself to be a sent one, submitting to the Father. Therefore, he says, the things which I heard from him, I don't speak on my own initiative, the things which I heard from him, these are the things I speak to you. He heard things from the Father in a way nobody else ever has. He heard things from the Father when he was in such close intimacy with him. Figuratively speaking, it was face to face. They were intimate and close. He had uh, access to the Father no one has ever had. And so the Lord Jesus is essentially making the point, my authority, the authority which you Jewish religious leaders call into question, my authority is derived from my relationship with the Father. 
But, verse 27, they didn't realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. And I find that to be tragic, sad. These are the religious leaders, and yet they don't know fundamental basic things about Father God. They don't know of him. They don't know how to access him. And they don't even know the Son of God is speaking about Father God. And so Jesus said to them in verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. When you lift up the Son of Man. When we think about Lifting up the Son of Man, we mean exalting and worshiping and praising him. But in this context, that's not the meaning. When he said, when you lift up the Son of Man, I believe that's a reference to his crucifixion. When they participated in lifting him up on a cross, all those things which accompanied his crucifixion and which came subsequent to it, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, all those things will testify to them that he is exactly who he claimed to be, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Son of God who came to save. So it would be in the death, in the burial, the resurrection, ascension of Jesus that he would be revealed to these Jewish religious leaders. But you ask the question, how will they then see him to be who he claimed to be? Folks, you recall the phenomenal events that accompanied his crucifixion. Uh, uh, It is recorded for us, for instance, in Matthew's gospel account in chapter 27 Beginning in verse 45, I'll read to you. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So you see there were atmospheric conditions even that accompanied. This was an exceptional day. All this was the Father's doing to call attention to the crucifixion of his only begotten son. So there was darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, remember this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Eliyahu, for Elijah. Well, immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. This is another thing that accompanied the crucifixion. The very veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And not only that, the earth shook. Rocks were split. Tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many dead people alive. Now the centurion, a Roman man, and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So can you see what the Lord is saying? There'll be a time, it'll be when you lift me up on the cross. Then you will know, in light of all 
that uh, occurs simultaneous with the crucifixion, then you will know the things I told you about me, which you now deny, are true. Then you will know. And so through all these things, he says, the Jewish religious leaders would know that Jesus was God. And I want to tell you something. They did. And yet, tragically, most, in spite of it, did not turn to him as Savior and as Lord. Why not? Folks, it is due to the incredible and terrifying power of unbelief. Blindness can run so deep that even in the face of the evidence and the facts, your heart remains hardened, your mind remains closed. I want to tell you something. If you now have spiritualized to see Jesus as Savior, you and I should have thanksgiving every single day. We ought to say, oh God, thank you for unblinding my otherwise blinded eyes. Oh God, I could not have found my way to you. I want to tell you, if Jesus doesn't save you, you can't get saved. You can't do it. Now I know this leads to a lot of questions. Well, he opened my eyes, but why doesn't he open the eyes of another? Look, I don't have the answers to all these questions that people much better than me are discussing, but in spite of the fact that I, I, I don't comprehend all things, I don't want to miss this. If you're born again, it's not because you woke up one day and said, this is a good day to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. No, nobody does that. Nobody does that. No one seeks after God, the scriptures say. Something has to happen to enable us to be affected by our sin problem and uh, thus see Jesus as the solution to it. And so can you see, even in the face of these dramatic events that accompanied the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, most of the Jewish religious leaders remained blinded and in unbelief. And not just that, they subjected their very Messiah, to unreasonable abuse, insult, indignities, and rejection. And yet, that Jesus was never left alone. What do I mean? Well, take a look at what he says in verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This Jesus, Son of God, had the firm conviction that though he faced the agony of the cross, his Father had not, would not ever abandon him. And folks, there is no abandonment, not only of the Son of God by the Father, in the same sense, there is no abandonment by the Father of the sons and daughters of God. I got to tell you, no matter what messages you and I may hear, hurtful messages even, messages of rejection, perhaps because we are identified with Christ, you have to know our Father, your Father, will never, ever abandon nor reject you. I would like to have the favor of other people, but I could live without it, but I couldn't live 
if I was rejected by and separated from the creator and giver of life. And that's the assurance we Christians have. It's not a possibility. Having bought us with a price, he'll never let us go. No matter what others think, the Father's thoughts are these. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so the Son knew this and had the firm conviction that the Father did not abandon him. Now here's what happened, verse 30. As, now we're getting closer to the issue we opened the service with. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. As he spoke these things, listen, at this point, it wasn't his miracles, it was his words. It was the words of truth. They had such power to affect people that uh, sitting under his words, the text says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. I tell you, that's really intensely good news because of what he said in verse 24. He said, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. And so for people to believe in him is a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm feeling a little excited about this uh, verse, even as I stand here 2,000 years removed from it, and so therefore I'm perplexed as to why the Lord didn't just say, Mazel tov. Congratulations. Way to go. Welcome to the family. None of that. What happened? Here's what he says, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, he was saying this to those Jews who had believed him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Why did he say that? I think he said it because he wasn't at all convinced that their uh, profession of faith in him was authentic. I I don't think he was persuaded at all. Therefore, I think he gives the authenticating uh, criteria, the evidence or proof of what it really means to be saved. It's this. If you continue in my word. Hmm. Not if you say you're a Christian, not if you pray a prayer, if anyone could do that, and it's good, it's a starting point, but the real test of the legitimacy of one's profession is continuing in the faith. If you continue in my word. Here then is the answer to the question we opened with and which you discussed. How can you tell, in fact, if someone is a Christian? Well, folks, it's a function of whether that one is continuing in Christ's word. Continuing in his word, if I'm reading this correctly, is the distinguishing characteristic of true followers of the Lord. So I know that redemption begins, I understand this, with a profession of faith in Christ, but it must not end there. That's only the beginning. And so the one who has professed to know Christ or who has um, followed you as you led them in a prayer to accept Christ. That's wonderful. But that one can only be truly, surely seen to be truly born again 
if, according to what I'm reading, if that one continues in the word of Christ. That's important. We Baptists hate this. Because we just want to count them. Okay, count all you want. And then we want to report. 200 professions of faith. 200. Well, you don't, you don't know if how many of those really accept, truly accepted Christ. You don't know that. Even Billy Graham, a man of, we hold in such high esteem for good reason, realized years ago the many hundreds and thousands who would come forward at one of his crusades, he'd send his team back a year later, he couldn't find a one of them. Not a one of them. Couldn't find many of them. They had just gotten back into the, into the world. I would never, ever discourage seeking to lead someone to Christ, sharing the gospel. That's why I memorized these 40 words. I try to share that all the time. I want to make Christ an issue. And I'm, I am thrilled when someone bows their head, perhaps, and prays to accept the Lord, but I can't say mazel tov just yet. That means congratulations, by the way. Uh, I have to wait for a month, two months, three months, three years. I'm just simply evaluating that person's profession on the basis of what the Lord says in verse 31. Is that one continuing in his word? Now, what does that mean? to continue in God's word. Well, the word continue can also be translated abide. You may have that in your translation, abide. It means to live in, to dwell in. It means to live in the atmosphere of God's word. It means you've ceased to be a visitor, staying over in a guest home once in a while. You don't pay an occasional visit to truth. You're affected by it. It means the word of God has now shaped your world view. It means you think Christianly. You think biblically now. It means when someone asks you about the moral imperatives of the day, same gender marriage and abortion and all the rest, you have ceased to share what feels good and what appeals to your intellect, and you are now informed by Scripture. You have the mind of Christ expressed scripturally, and scripturated truth is the atmosphere in which you live. You breathe in truth. You don't care about what the population says. You don't worry about well, what you used to think. You say, oh, no, I cannot support abortion that's life. And you say, oh, no, I cannot support same-gender marriage because my God created the institution of marriage. And he makes it clear it consists of a man and a woman forming one irreversible unit. You're informed by these things. The way you handle money changes. The way, oh, my goodness, what a proliferation of sex scandal coming out. Every five minutes for crying out loud. It's unbelievable what's happening uh, uh, today. I'm telling you what's going to happen now because we're seeing so much of this. Uh, people are going to start saying, what's the big deal? Since it appears everyone's doing it, by the way, not everyone's doing it. It's not true but it appears that way. 
And so people are going to say, since it seems to be normative behavior to have these sexual encounters, uh, whether you're married, whether the partner, it doesn't matter, in the office place, in a hayloft, wherever you do these things, uh, since everyone's doing it, it must be normal and natural. I mean, you know, and if you have consenting adults, what's the big deal? I'm telling you, people are going to think that way, and I have to tell something to you. Before I was born anew, I think I would have bought into that. But I wouldn't be in favor of imposing oneself on another. But if you have a willing partner, I mean, why not? You got the equipment, why not use it? That's the way the world thinks. That's what I, you know. Before the plumbing rusts, you know, I'm telling you. That's, that's the way. Look at how God made me almost fall because of... See that? But I'm telling you, that's yeah, but, but now I think that's a repulsive thought. Sex is God's idea. He's not down on sex. He knows how it works. It has to be in the context of a marriage, which is based on covenant. It has to be reserved for the husband-wife relationship. It's holy matrimony. Now I'm I'm I'm, I'm informed differently. You see what? So, 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 so Jesus is saying, I can't say Mazel Tov, congratulations, I'm so glad you believe in me. He's saying the real test of it all is if one is demonstrating a continuation of dwelling, abiding in the word of God. That's, that's the test. The true believer is one whose life is shaped by God's word. I want to read you something. Uh, it was a le- it's an anonymous letter. It was written in the second century. It's called the Letter to Diognetus, but we don't know who the author is. But the author is trying to come to grips with a group of people he found quite unusual, distinct, odd. He labeled them Christians. He's writing a letter describing these Christians. He saw some distinctive characteristics in their life. Listen, here's the letter. Second century. Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs and clothing, food, and other aspects of life, but at the same time, they demonstrate to us the unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are put to death and gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They're treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. 
When punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks. Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. I want to tell you, you see some kind of lifestyle like that, you can be reasonably sure that one who professed to know Christ does indeed know Christ. How could it be that the creator of the universe would take up his abode in one's life and did not show? Why does the Bible say if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, if he still is as a pattern enveloped by his or her old ways? Now, be careful about what I'm saying. I don't mean in any way to insinuate that abiding in God's word is how one gets saved. No, I'm trying to say it is the evidence of the fact that one is saved. Can you see the difference? A person is not saved by anything but the grace of God. A person is not saved by abiding in God's word, but if he abides in God's word, he or she is then showing he or she truly is saved. We Southern Baptists are very strong on the front end of evangelism, but I think fairly weak thereafter. So we're seeking converts, but are fairly poor about making disciples. So our churches are filled with wheat and tares. Sometimes we Southern Baptists wonder how could there be such friction and conflict in our churches amongst Christians. Well, that is, uh, they're operating under the presumption that they're dealing with Christians. How do you know that? Just some, because someone prayed a prayer, walked an aisle? Where's the evidence? I'm not trying to be a bad guy here. I didn't write verse 31. You're reading it. The Lord Jesus was not excited about these many who believed in him. He said, oh, really? If you're really a disciple, a follower of mine, you'll continue in my, you'll abide in the atmosphere of my word. You'll be affected by it. So, folks, a, a stated belief in Jesus is a wonderful thing, but a stated belief in Jesus that only lasts a short time is not saving faith, is not saving faith at all. A new believer wrote something to a friend of his. There's good reason to believe, based upon what that new believer said to his friend, he truly is a born-again one. Here's what the new believer said to his friend. I am now reading the Bible and behaving it. Evidence of salvation. Say, Subsequent to inviting Christ into his life. I understand that's the starting point. Then he makes this statement. I'm now reading the Bible. See, one of the evidences of salvation is an interest in Scripture. You run to it. You think it's written to you. It becomes that personal. This one says, I'm now reading the Bible. And that's I don't. And behaving it. That's what it means to abide in Christ's Word. It's really simple. If someone has professed Christ but is not abiding in his word, there's good reason to believe that person's profession of faith is not real and is not authentic. We do harm when we persuade one such as that too soon that they are, in fact, born anew. We really do harm. 
See, that person runs out and says, I'm a Christian, but living like that guy in the bar. <laughs> I prefer uh, folks who exemplify nominal Christianity not to identify with Christ. It would be easier for the rest of us to do evangelism out there. <clears throat> so, uh, now don't, don't misunderstand. There are times when even a truly born again one, I understand this, understand this, struggles with submission to God's word. In other words, there are times when God's authentically regenerated kids disobey him. I know this. However, even in the lives of the, that one, there is this uh, eventual misery and discomfort. There is this palpable conviction of sin because that one is possessed by God's spirit that leads to repentance so that repetitive rebellion is not the pattern even for that one who has sinned. The pattern is to abide in God's word. I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. I'm talking about the person whose life is affected by biblical truth. You can know that one for sure, is a Christian. So, so then in this text, I don't think the Lord is telling us how to be saved. I think the Lord is telling us how we can know who is saved. Big difference here. A saved person, a, a Christian, is someone who is continuing in God's word. A Christian is not someone who's turned over a new leaf. A Christian is someone who has a new life. And it shows. It's the life of Christ in him. And the evidence is that he's continuing to live. Continuing to live in the atmosphere of God's word. So I ask you as we close. Is this you? It ought not be a mystery. It is or it isn't. If you asked me, I would be able to tell you, yeah, this is me. I'm a sinner. I have it in me still to sin, and sometimes I choose to do so. However, I'm different. I'm really born again. I have a different attitude towards just about everything. Dwelling in God's word affects what movies I go to or not. Affects what recreational pursuits I engage in. Affects what I drink or not. Affects how I handle my money, my body, raise my kids, respond to my wife. Everything is affected. There's no doubt in my mind, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus. I see evidence, not of virtue, I didn't say that. Not of personal discipline, oh no. I see evidence of the fact that he has taken up his abode in my life and as a result changed me in such ways that I can attribute that only to him. It's not, I didn't read a book, participate in a support group, embrace some new philosophy, turn over a new leaf. I'm different on the inside. You know how different I am now? I could be going through the channels and see something now. Oh, my goodness. And I know I shouldn't be seeing it. And on a good day, I'll quickly change the channel. 
I still have the capacity to stay there longer than I should. I understand that. But now I have the option to change the channel. I never thought of exercising that. I had no desire of exercising that option. If it feels good, do it. That's the philosophy, but it's different now. It's different. Did I want to do what pleases the Father? Now, where did I get that? I've not seen God. I've not ever seen him. I have not heard God audibly. I have not literally felt his touch, and none of it matters. I'm different. I'm a Jewish guy in a church. What in the world? I have no doubt that I have been born anew. And I made the first step on September 5th, 1973, in the military barracks when I prayed a very weak and awkward, a distorted prayer. Oh, God, I said, if that's your name. That's what I said. I want to make a deal with you. What? That's what I said. Here's the deal, God. If you do for me what you did for Mark. Mark was a barracks mate who shared the gospel with me. He had a changed life. I said, God, here's the deal. If you do for me what you did for Mark, I'll give you the rest of my life. That's the deal. Now, I know all the good things you have for me. I have forfeited because I've sinned. And that has erected a barrier between you and me because now I realize your holiness and my sin don't mix. Now, I know what you did for me. You died for me on the... I understood all that. And I said, I made the deal. Do for me what you did for Mark, and I'll give you the rest of my... I was September 5th, 1973. Did it take... Yeah, it did. Because it's a lot of years since then, and by God's grace, I'm abiding in his word. Please don't miss I'm not boasting about anything. I got all kinds of spiritual ups and downs just like you. I'm subject to temptation just like you, and sometimes I give into it. I understand that. I'm not trying to impress you with anything except this. Come on. When you legitimately ask Jesus to come into your life, it better show. And so when we come back a year after you make that decision, we ought to see you continuing on in the word of God. And if not, there's good reason to believe you never accepted Christ. Even he says, I, the Bible says, Jesus was not entrusting himself to many because he knew what was on their hearts. You'll forgive me, therefore, if I don't say mazel tov as soon as someone accepts Christ over here. Oh, I say, wonderful. That's the best decision you've ever made. That's a decision that has eternal ramifications. But to be honest with you, I'm only excited when I say, oh, they're here next Sunday and the next Sunday or in another good church. doesn't matter. Oh, they've been baptized. Oh, they're in Bible study. Oh, it's six months and they're still here. Oh, it's a year. They've gone on a missions trip. Come on. None of those things saved them. I didn't say that. But those are evidences of the legitimacy of the salvation which they propose to possess. So I tell you, I just told you, I am certain I'm in Christ now and forevermore. And just as the Father would never abandon 
the only begotten son. He'll never abandon this son or these sons or daughters, if you know Christ. Now, if you don't know Christ, you're uncertain about the whole thing. No shame if you admit it. Just spend some time with us as we take leave. In fact, could you stand to your feet? Now we're going to dismiss. But I'd like to invite those of you who are troubled by all this. You don't have evidence of the fact that Christ is in you, that you've been redeemed, that you've crossed over from darkness to light. If that's you, no shame uh, to admit it. And we'd like to give you because really, we respect you. We would like to give you private time in the Connection Center. It's the room right behind us. People are there right now, and they'll lovingly let you share your heart, speak to you about how to be certain that you have turned yourself over to the grace and goodness and mercy of a God who stands ready to grant you forgiveness and new life in Christ. So, Lord Jesus, that's our prayer, that there be not one person who leaves here tonight without assurance of salvation based on noticeable evidence of continuation in the word of Christ. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.